welcome to Navigating Change, the education podcast from Tybal Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and today we present a conversation on systems. Howard Tybal recently sat down with noted educator and prolific writer Bill Massey to talk about our changing perception of universities as complex human systems. The advanced modeling work that Bill has done over his distinguished career has helped institutions around the world to better understand pedagogical performance improvement and the relationship of that work to administration and leadership. He's an award-winning author, emeritus professor, and former vice president of Stanford University, and we're delighted to have him on the show today. Before I hand it over to Howard, be sure to head over to tybalink.com to learn more about our work in education. You can subscribe to the show for free. Just click the blue button, and we'll let you know each time a great new show like this is released. And now, Howard Tybal and our very special guest, Bill Massey. Thank you, Pete. Well, Dr. Massey, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Absolutely. So you recently gave a presentation at Southern New Hampshire University on re-engineering the university, which is foundation also that comes from your book. And we're going to make this available also so people can see what this book is. We'll have links uh, for people who are interested to learn more about you. The, the subtitle of this is How to Be Mission-Centered, Market-Smart, and Margin-Conscious. I'd like to have us start talking about what you talk about as the flaws in the academic business model or the flaws in the academic and administrative model, however we frame it. There's so much talk about these these days. What does the flaws in the academic model mean to you? And I'm going to even say, why should people care today? Well, I think the flaws are, they, they, they detract somewhat from the academic business model that has served us so well. But I just want to say at the outset, I really believe in that business model. Focusing on students, trying to get students to learn, doing this in a nonprofit setting. We'll come back to that uh, in a moment. But the flaws are, first of all, it all stems from the fact we don't have good operational measures of learning. And we have not had the kinds of incentives that we need in order to develop such measures. And secondly, the notion of cost is disengaged or disconnected uh, from the, the notion of effectiveness. You've got faculty responsible for effectiveness, and they spend a lot of time working to try to improve the way they do things. Usually, they would like to find new ways to spend money. Uh, they, and they can find wonderfully new ways to spend money. Cost, on the other hand, is somebody else's problem. It's the financial officer's problem, or maybe the provost, too, because it all comes together with the provost. But, but uh, So you've got this big disconnect, and that's one of the biggest flaws that you have. It wouldn't matter so much if we had really good measures of learning outcomes, because then figuring out whether what you're spending money on is cost-effective or not would come naturally. It doesn't. So you have to do something to jumpstart that process. So those two flaws are things that until we're able to deal with that on some kind of evidence-based basis, uh, it's going to be difficult to make progress. You know, I love this, the the three things that you're subtitled. Mission-centered is to be whatever we do, however we evolve, it's consistent with our mission and our and our historical mission, but also our evolving mission. Market smart is what is the market telling us they're looking for? But the most important one that I think you're speaking to here too is this idea of margin conscious. And I love the, the I love the language of conscious. I think what you're saying there is that we need to raise our level of consciousness about elements of margin that should matter to us. Do you find that maybe it's because people are just so busy? that we don't put much attention and focus on this level of margin, that there isn't a level of consciousness around it. Yeah, well, certainly the, the, it is true that people don't pay much attention. There's not a level of consciousness at the level where it really matters in order to be meaningful. 
Uh, it's partly a matter that people are busy, uh, but partly that they don't really have information about margin where it counts, namely at the level of the decisions they actually make. Individual courses, individual programs, individual majors, degrees, whatever. Uh, we don't have good data about margins. And then secondly, when we, be if we begin to get good data, the reaction of faculty, which I think is understandable given the history, uh, is that if you worry about margin, the next step is going to be to try to maximize it. Right. Because margin does equate the problem. There you go. And well, that's, that's at the heart of what I've discovered is, and I said this yesterday at this university, is that we have a tendency to think that if we raise an issue, it means we've made a decision. That's true. There's also, yes, very much so. Also, uh, there's a sense that data, I heard this wonderful term out also in California, as it turns out, that if you put data on the table, it can be weaponized. Yes. <laughs> against you. And margin is sort of the ultimate potential for weaponization. And, you know, you want to maximize, people maximize profits. And that gets back to this not-for-profit model. It's really very important to understand the role that margin plays in the not-for-profit model. And it is not something you want to maximize. Well, it's interesting because that you, you speak about that very clearly. And I love that. Non-for-profits non or not-for-profits Pro positive margins are invested in high-value activities that in some case lose money. So in the situations where they lose money, for, for the for-profits, positive margins are distributed to shareholders and money-losing programs are shut down. And this is where faculty who live in those worlds of offering value and it's consistent with mission are afraid that by, and understandably, by raising this to the surface, it could reveal that what I'm offering that I have invested my lifetime in may be considered on the on the chopping block. Absolutely. They, that, they, that's the big problem when you start talking about margin. And it turns out that's not what people should do. But they under, what really has to happen is that academic officers need to understand how to use margin. Uh, then they can work with their financial counterparts to figure out how to estimate it, get it, measure it properly. And then they can reach out and engage with faculty. Uh, and it does turn out, by the way, that faculty also can use margin. Well, I say faculty, I mean really department chairs and, and associate chairs and program heads and so forth. They can use margin to good effect once they get right. the data. And they have to find a way to engage their faculty in these conversations. I mean, it's okay. one of the things you wrote in a great article we'll also post uh, on our website is uh, the article in the Chronicle about faculty members must play their part. And you talk about the traditional narrative about teaching costs can't be controlled, which is an outdated way of looking at it. Teaching co costs cannot be measured in a precision, in a precise way. But most interesting for me is that teaching cost is the responsibility of the administrators, not the academic. And you're raising this mantra that we need to care. And, and isn't it true that one way to get academics to care and I'm not saying all don't. I think many do. Part of this is they have a primary role, and that's teaching and research, right? And there's been a historical view that the administrative side's job is to figure out the numbers, right? Yeah, right? provide me with what I need to do my job. But ultimately, how do you get more academics to be engaged positively in the conversation? And one thing I've discovered that I've heard people nod their head and say, yeah, you're right, 
is that if you, we don't engage, if you don't engage, somebody else is going to make the decision for you. Talk for a minute about you know the experience you've had both as an academic and an administrative side of the house. What what is your background in that way? Well, I, I came to this doing honest labor, namely as a professor. Right. <laughs> I uh, was, uh, oh, I guess about a dozen years as a professor, up through the ranks, full professor, all the rest. Yep. Became an associate dean of the Stanford Business School. Then I was tapped uh, and moved across to the provost's office. I was vice provost for research at Stanford for five years. Then I became acting provost. Provost went on sabbatical for a whole year. And I was the I was the number two guy at Stanford, chief academic officer. So you've lived both worlds. When you were a faculty member and you didn't have this administrative level of awareness or in a in a position of leading others as in these roles of provost or other uh, roles that it's really about has a management quality to it. What is the faculty mindset that administrators need to understand? I think, first of all, the faculty work very hard on improving the way in which they teach and they do their research. That consumes them, and they really don't have much truck. They don't find the administration very interested. We always talk, as faculty members, talk about the financial people as the bean counters. Totally. And that says, that kind of says it all. As provost, you begin to realize that, you know, if you've got to allocate the beans. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but faculty don't really get that. Now, uh, I should add one more thing. In my, after being active provost, I then became the chief financial officer at Stanford, the vice president for business and finance. I did that. Then you really were in the thing. Then I was really counting the beans. Yeah. Uh, and, but also working with faculty because I was a member of the faculty. I still had my tenure all through that period. And I went back to the faculty afterwards. So, and that was when I began to hatch the ideas that we were talking about, looking back on that experience. The way in which, to go back to your earlier question, the way in which I found that you engage faculty uh, is that you present them with some data, with some yes, evidence. Yes, uh, And evidence that it's on manifestly on something that they care about, like their courses. I mean, yeah. People are interested in their courses. And you show them how much, the, how much they cost and what the different parts of them cost. And, and this is important. You have to be able to show them in a way that makes sense to them. They have to be able to rate, relate to the structure of, of where those costs are coming from. They get kind of interested in that. Yes. That's intrinsically interested. And what do, administra so, so what do administrators do instead that often doesn't lead to success in those conversations? Well, they, want to do, they do one of two things, really. Uh, one is they, they tell them top down, you must do this. You, you got too many courses that have too few students, so you got to you know, you got to cut out ten percent of the. Well, of course, that immediately raises all kinds of defensiveness because some of these courses really are important. And da 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 da. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, you uh, they 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 look at cost models that are dumb, pardon the expression, that are insufficient. If mm. cost, let's use a particular example. If cost per credit hour is what is uh, looked at in terms of departments. You, this department has too big a cost per credit hour, for example, and that is taken as as uh, as a measure of the productivity of the department. And the more you bang on that drum, the less faculty are going to like it because they understand how ambiguous a simple statistic like cost per credit hour really is. Yeah. It, I mean, it may mean if supposing the cost per credit, I actually ran into this particular example in a, in a university here in New England, a flagship state university. 
Uh, and uh, the uh, the cost per credit hour of the English department was going down and down and down over a period of years because of budget cuts. And the administration, I was working with the uh, CFO at that point, with talking with the provost as well. And uh, you know they were they were delighted. Wow, Bill, uh, how about going out and interviewing those faculty in English and finding out what what's their secret sauce? I mean, mm. what's you know, how are they doing it? This is terrific. Well, I did. It took about two hours in the department of talking to people. Surprisingly, administrators don't often do that and ask the right questions. And what it turned out was they coped with with successive rounds of budget cutting, which means less, fewer and fewer faculty and fewer and fewer, you know, dollars. Uh, and and what they did was first they increased class size, then they increased the use of adjuncts or sessional faculty who are not well integrated, but they're cheap. Uh, then they began cutting out assignments. They said, well, we don't have uh, the money to grade, to hire graders or so forth, so we won't have writing assignments. Uh, this is English, you know. This is what big, This is what you mean by dumb. Yeah, right. And right, because you end what? up you end up with an outcome where you can show a positive net margin, but yeah. you end up having truly a lesser value experience. Absolutely, it's and they were they they kept trying to tell the dean and the provost that, but in the noise and everything, it didn't get through. Well, if you present them with data, present faculty with data that show not just the cost per credit hour. But things like class sizes and use of adjuncts and, 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 and the whole picture, they will inevitably, every time I've done this, uh, they get really interested in it. And right, the because they see, they, one, you're, you're honoring the mix that yes. they're living. Yes, and you tell them, look, we can't, and this, this is the, you as the administrator, we can't make these decisions for you. Only you can make the decisions, the trade-offs amongst these various variables. Yes. And you need some kind of data in order to do it. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so uh, that now now you can begin to develop the conversations. And the, the proximate objective is when something is going off the rails, you don't want to have a dean jump and tell people what to do. You want to have a uh, engaged faculty in a constructive conversation about what to do. Talk about this uh, full-scale, the computer simulation, which is really about role-playing. Because I think that I have discovered that Using simulations and role playing can be a very powerful tool mm -hmm. to get people to be immersed in the experience in, in in some cases an artificial way that they can then take back and translate to their own world. So oh, so yes. so talk about talk about this computer simulation around university behavior, which I, I love the connection of those two things. Is that virtual you you're talking yes. about? Or, yeah. Okay. Uh, well. Uh, this goes back to um, uh, basically the early days of computers uh, when and I was involved in this when I was an assistant professor back at MIT way back in the dark ages. Uh, we actually built a ma management simulation, one of the early ones, and used to, just for that reason is to get our, man our management students, executive program students involved because it's basically what you, you want people to work in groups. You want to give them something that's dynamic and changing to talk about in the groups. The professor will structure the kind of framework for, t for this doing, but they have to go through the discussion. Anyway, they worked right on up, and Virtual U was an effort funded by the Sloan Foundation about 15 years ago. I okay, guess. so this, was, this is something that you did a while back. Are you applying yeah. 
What's your experience in today's world, especially with really improvement on those virtual experiences, about integrating the, the use of the virtual experience as a way to get people to practice this new kind of behavior? Is there, is there something that we should be doing more of in that way, or are you doing this with, in your own work? Uh, well, I, there is something we should be doing more of, and I'm just really get starting it again in my own work. Great. The virtual view simulation, by the way, is no longer available. It's, it's okay. on an old version of Windows. It was too big and too complicated. Yep. And some d design errors in it and so on. However, what is now the way it should go uh, and is beginning to go uh, is you get, have to get a model that is grounded in real data and has these structural components that we talked about, meaningful. And then you, that model starts by looking at the history of a particular institution, mm. two years of data, so you can see how things go. But then you want to develop it in terms of what we call a what-if model. If we do this. Yes. Or scenarios. Create, giving, providing scenarios to engage in. Scenarios, right. The students in the field drop off or go up or whatever. Or, uh, you know, the government cuts the Pell Grants or, you know, you name it. You can develop scenarios on financial things, on operating things. So now you say, what are you, how are you going to cope with this? Uh, and exactly. Let people put in, uh, put in the data for a new scenario. It's got to be simple enough they can do that in a teaching setting. That can be done. And those models, even now, there's a really good model that right now is under development. You know, this, this is going to be available within the year. It's available actually at a couple places now. Yeah. And so you're going to be involved in that more of that kind of work. That's Up fantastic. Eyeballs, yes. The experience of the relationship between the three major leadership bodies on a college campus, which whether it's a large public institution and there's public boards or a small private with with our private boards, you know, the, the relationship between the academic side of the house, the administrative side of the house, and the and the and the trustees, public mm -hmm. or private. How do we really treat this as in some way a, a leadership team see they don't they don't operate like a leadership no team. they certainly don't the Not trustees usually. their job is to push the president or the chancellor the administration is working to keep the peace between academic administration and the academic side of the house is focusing on what they're what, what they're most interested in, and, and to me, it has a quality of power to it, right? Yeah. Academics have power over whether they're going to cooperate. Yep. Administration has power over resources. Yep. And trustees have power over leadership. Yep. Uh, policy, yeah, overall policy, yeah. And and the nature of how they work together is through those power relationships, which is always going to be there. The thing that I'm continuously doing when I'm working with these three major leadership bodies is trying to get them to understand you need to understand the other side. You need to start working together in a collaborative way mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. just focusing on cooperating with each other. How can we move in the direction of getting the academic side of the house, the administrative side of the house, and the trustees to be thinking about themselves as a coherent leadership body? Let me digress for just a moment before getting into that. Uh, people often ask me, well, you know, who should make the initiative to make these changes? And uh, so, I, you know, ideally, it's a university administration, the president, provost, CFO team of some sort that will decide they need to do something with, after consulting, you know, talk with key members of the faculty and so forth and then get on with it. 
Well, the uh, suppose they don't, however. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and they're all busy, and you know, I have often asked, "What's the role of the of the trustees in that?" And I believe the trust the trustees have a strong role. If they aren't seeing it on the campus, they need to make it happen. It is the trustees' responsibility to make sure that the administration is engaging in processes that are going to deliver what everybody wants. Holding to do. them accountable. Yeah. So they got to start. At, a trustee does that by starting by asking questions. Do you know about this? What That's do you great. know about that? That's what do you right. do to get the information on this? And a, a, an administration that is doing those things will talk your arm off if you're a trustee about what they're doing beyond the level that the trustee can really t- take it in. But they'll know that it's happening. And these guys right. and gals are really good at, the, at smelling that out. Right. So uh, big arguments that trustees should keep out of the internal operations, in, in my view, is absolutely false. Trustees have to satisfy themselves that the processes are yeah. And if they aren't, keep asking, and if, even if necessary, make changes. You know, yeah. I, what's very interesting about that is there is this if, – if you think – there's an inherent mistrust – between all three groups, mm-hmm. you know, don't meddle in my business. Right. And, and I absolutely agree. The trustees <laughs> have a role to play, but they have to do it in a way that is leading with questions versus telling. Yes, absolutely. Or, and- or, or accusatory, right? Yeah. Why yeah. aren't you? Yeah. And the dilemma is you think about the turnover, the turnover in chairmanship, Turnover of a president, turnover of a provost. Isn't part of the nature of the challenge higher ed has is that by the time we get some momentum, we have a change in leadership. That certainly is a problem. Right? Uh, yeah. And and how do you and, and this is an area where I think we need to not necessarily extend the tenure of these different roles, but we have to make those directions not centered on the individual. But centered on the institution's value. You you say this is what we're going to do. It's not about me. It's about what we're trying to accomplish. So sometimes it turns into what I want to get done, mm-hmm. and that can be a dilemma because when that person leaves or moves on or changes roles, it's no longer the next person's yeah. objective. Well, that's what happens in, in improving teaching quality. You get a faculty member teaching a course who does some really good innovative stuff. And then moves on, and the next faculty member has no sense, no obligation, no interest in, yeah. in repeating that starts over again. Same thing at the higher levels. Well, yes, we do need continuity. And I think the way you get continuity is, uh, first, you've got to have some processes and some build around evidence. And if the structure of generating the data are in place and the processes for processing that information are in place. It's much easier to carry on because you change the leadership. The data keep coming. That's right. The questions that's keep- right. I mean, what what your what your I think what your mantra is that's so critical is that we need to be more rigorous about understanding our current position. We can do it now. The data is out there. The tools are out there, and now it's a matter of a commitment to take that on, and then a willingness to look at it. Right. Yeah, willing to look at it and act on it. And at every level, uh, people need to be asking questions of the level below them. You know, what are you doing about this? What yeah. you, you know, why is this, you know, why is this what it is? Ask it nonviolently, as you say, not accusing Exactly. It. But the, this is, this something seems to be happening. Let's talk about it. And that goes right on up to the trustees. Uh, and I started learning about that at Stanford. I worked with the Stanford trustees for 12 years as CFO, of, you know, very closely. And they, they were wonderful, and they, I'm sure, still are. We, what we did was we would, we would 
bring to them a, a lot of evidence structured in ways that they could ask the best possible questions about it. And when we failed by chance to do that, they would ask us. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and it was a very, a very fine process. There was no element of micromanagement in it from their side. Uh, it was a very constructive. And when you do it right, you're dealing with all three of those things. You're dealing with mission. Why is what we're doing further in the mission? How do you know? You know, how can you improve it? Secondly, what about the market? We don't exist only to serve the market because we have our own values. But we collect money from the market. We serve you know, students and, and, uh, and research sponsors. So we got to have information. we got to take that into account. And then, of course, margin is the signal. That yes. That's the bottom line signal that allows it's kind of a shorthand way of telling us how we're doing. You know, to make this investment, you need to have a compelling case. And, and I'll tell you, I'm not so concerned. I'm not as concerned about what we coin as the the elite institutions, the ones with the with the very high endowments, which have a brand that that the diploma in itself is enough for them to have a waiting list, a forever waiting list. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But the majority of schools don't live in that. Absolutely. And then within those schools, the middle tier. Let's just use the, use this as the example. The middle tier higher price liberal arts institutions that are maybe in parts of the country that are potentially losing enrollments and don't have big endowments. My concern is this philosophical question, do we need a crisis, internal or external, to really care to look at this? And I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. Uh, yes, 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 I have. What's your feeling about that? Well, I, I agree with you, basically. Uh, I've been, by the way, uh, described uh, as a hopeless romantic <laughs> when it comes to the mission and the possibilities for higher ed, and I yes. really, you know, really do believe that. And a hard-headed engineer when it comes to what, what, what are we going to do Monday morning? And I, I really do try and, and both of those. It really does take, I think, given a system that has gone on so long and has been as successful as high as traditional higher education, you do need some outside pressure to get change. Now, crisis, you know, I, I might argue that uh, we have a crisis. It's sort of looming. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, but some degree of outside pressure. Now, the further ahead of it we can get, the more preparation we can yeah. make for yeah. the real crisis hits, the better. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, it probably does take some pressure to break down those silos. So. Yeah. So, so to, to wrap this up, I think the last thing I'd love to hear from you is what – when you look forward in your work and the state of higher education, what are you most excited or enthused about? Because I think this can be, when I talk to leaders across the country and I speak publicly, I do believe this is probably one of the most exciting times to be in education. I think what makes me excited is at last, for the first time in history, really, the tools are available or becoming available for doing something systematic uh, and rational, reasonable, uh, you know, in a way that allows us to balance the subjective elements of mission with the objective elements of money and, and in the market. We have not had those tools until fairly recently. And it's the existence of those tools that provide the platform or the toolbox, you know, like for people like yourself and like me and, and, and many people in, in institutions that are beginning to get this, to actually build something. So it's no longer, I think, you think, and, you know, it, 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 we can begin to have constructive, evidence-based conversations about these very, very important issues. That is really exciting. I love it. So 
Where can we send people to learn more about what you're up to? Uh, share with our listeners some of the things where you'd like them to go to learn more about your work. Well, I think to start with, <laughs> I would like you to like them to read my book. I, I have tried very hard uh, to write my feelings on all of this, and I present both the philosophy and the basic uh, model of the not-for-profit enterprise and the flaws in the business model and all the stuff we've talked about, really, uh, plus a number of very specific models that can be used uh, to begin this process that, of, of, of evidence-based uh, management. In that book, I published at the Johns Hopkins University Press in, in February. It came out. It's coming out in paperback, by the way. Beautiful. Uh, in January, so it's going to be available uh, more widely. It's on Amazon, of course. Anyway, as of about uh, nine months before last February, that was my thinking. It yes. It took that long to get it into publication. Since then, I've continued to work, and I've developed actually some new models and some new experience in applying the existing models. I publish whenever I can. There's a t t paper that's put out by the TIAA Institute and uh, NACUBO, National Association of College and University Business Officers, that's available on the web. Look, look um, for TIAA and Massey. Great. And we'll you know what we'll do, too, is we'll post these links on our, on our website, on right. the podcast page, so people can click right there to get access to these. I, I was going to say, people like yourself could help a lot, and they should come. People should come to people like yourself. Uh, uh, I'm on. I'm, I'm beginning to post now on LinkedIn, uh, and uh, uh, I'm going to do more of that. Uh, and in fact, I think that may be the the primary mode for the immediate stuff. Sort of what's what's new. Before that's where I saw. That's where I saw the publication of your yep. reengineering uh, presentation at Southern New Hampshire University exactly. on LinkedIn. And um, so that that's a great venue. It seems to be more and more a place, a great place in in the business academic world where people are looking, you know, versus Facebook or Twitter yes. and all those. Yes, it's serious. It's uh, more serious than any of those others. And and uh, their rules, you know, you you can do something that's meaningful long enough to be meaningful. And I think they do an excellent job. So I'm right. going to be doing more of that. And a lot of it is, of course, networking, and a lot of it is the sort of stuff that we're doing now. All right. So not to be a Debbie Downer. So let's see if we can let's see if we can have this brief conversation, and not have it go down the tubes. We talked in preparation for this call about the new administration. Right. And I, and and you had some things to say about that I thought were really important. So as you think about what we're about to what we're entering into. Uh, what do you think is important for education leaders to be thinking about as it relates to you know, a new president and the direction it looks like we may be going? Okay, well, first of all, let me say a few words about the maybe good news. Uh, both sides of the spectrum were talking about free college, you know, free college for all, which, in my opinion, will not happen in that form. It's just too darn expensive. Uh, not even sure it's a good policy anyway. But uh, I think uh, Trump uh, talked about the means test for it. Fine, maybe that's a way to go, Sanders, whatever. Anyway, there seems to be an understanding that higher, higher education has value and it's something we need more of, or at least we don't want to crush students with debt and, and so on and so forth. The other news, uh, and I, I think it may be good in the sense that we were talking about, so uh, is the new administration strikes me as going to be much more businesslike, if I can use that in quotes. That is, there's look at the appointments uh, to date, and these these are people who have been in business, hard, you know, experienced negotiators. I think we're going to see an uptick in uh, demands for accountability, 
for transparency, that they, especially if there's more money going in into the system through any channel. They're going to want to know what we are doing to manage the cost, to contain cost. They're going to want uh, a sh more than the typical assurance saying it's very complicated, guys. Just we know it and we go away with right. money. That won't wash. So I think we really do need over the next four years, we're going to really be pushed hard on transparency to show what we're doing and why. Uh, and and to establish a track record. And I love that you that you characterize that as good news because some people could interpret uh, a call from the outside for that kind of information as truly a burden, or they don't understand. And I think really the message is, and this is where you're coming from, this should give us more urgency to face this and develop that language and and those models and approaches uh, based on what we think is right. But these will be some dri external drivers that yes. will make it happen. Absolutely. And, you know, if we don't do it, they will do it to us. There you go. There you and go. Better than we do it. Much better. Well, listen, Dr. Massey, thank you so much for this. This has been so informative, and uh, I look forward to continuing connecting with you, and maybe we'll do this again sometime. Indeed, yes. It's been great, Howard. Thank you. All right. Too. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you.